there's this political parable about Hillary Clinton that made the rounds uh, during the primaries this year, a parable with many layers to it. One of our contributors, Jack Hitt, wrote about this recently for The New Republic. Elizabeth Warren is the person who tells the story. So this goes all the way back to the late 90s when Bill Clinton was still in office. Hillary Clinton was first lady. Elizabeth Warren wasn't a senator yet. She was a law professor at Harvard. And she had written, I think, an op-ed piece about this one bankruptcy bill. And Warren tells the story of the first lady making contact. And they sat down and she said it was just amazing talking to Hillary Clinton. And just the two of us. They closed the door. Mrs. Clinton sits down. We have hamburgers and French fries. You tutor her. This is Elizabeth Warren telling the story to Bill Moyers on television in 2004. One of the problems with this bill, she explained, is that if a man went bankrupt, he would have to pay off his credit card companies and his banks before he would pay off an ex-wife, child support, and alimony. She explained this to Moyers. And I got to tell you, I never had a smarter student. Quick, right to the heart of it. I go over the law. It's a complex law. Went over the economics, showed her the graphs, showed her the charts, and she got it. Within 20 minutes, she could play where the rest of it would come. Well, then that will mean this part's happened. That will mean this has happened. And she got right to the heart of it, totally understood it, and went back and convinced Bill to veto this bankruptcy bill. Warren said Bill Clinton had been planning on signing the bill. She credits Hillary with turning him around. You know, and that's the Hillary that we all recognize if you've read any of the, you know, magazine bios of her that go all the way back to college. The, you know, the valedictorian, the A-plus student, the woman who does her homework, figures it out, you know, has the best understanding. Um, But then Warren tells a a second part to the story. This part happens just a few months after the bill is vetoed. It's 2001. Clinton's no longer the first lady. So this time, she's a United States senator. She's been elected. A lot of her campaign money came from Wall Street, as Warren points out when she tells this story. And one of the first bills that came up after she was Senator Clinton was the bankruptcy bill. Uh, This is a bill that's like a vampire. It will not die, right? There's a lot of money behind it. The bill her husband had vetoed. Her husband had vetoed it very much at her urging. And? She voted in favor of it. And, of course, that's the Hillary that is often described as, you know, the kind of the opportunist, the, the woman who will do anything to, to keep power. The schemer. Yeah, the captive of Wall Street. But then there's yet another turn to the story. And that's in Hillary Clinton's version of the story. Hillary Clinton says, yes, she voted for the bill, but she did not do that to suck up to Wall Street. She says... She had quietly lobbied to insert language that would protect the vulnerable populations that Elizabeth Warren had warned her about, like single moms. I took that on, and I went to the floor, and I buttonholed the Democrats and the Republicans who were leading that bill. I said, you can't do this. And so when you hear this version of the story, then you see, oh, yes, right. Well, this is the Hillary Clinton that many liberal commentators love to talk about, the really smart sharp the legislator, right? The one who understands that so many of these legal battles, these legislative battles happen inside the parentheses of some footnote somewhere. A detail-oriented, shrewd. In this version of the story, Hillary gets to have her cake and eat it too. When she votes for the bill, it pleases Wall Street. When she adds the provision for divorced moms, it pleases her liberal base. Everybody's happy. But there is yet one last turn to the screw, In 2005, the bill comes up yet again in the Senate. It still has not become law. And this time, the protections that Clinton had fought for, 
for mothers and other vulnerable populations, those were not in the bill. So there's no way out for her on this one. She has to declare her side, you know, who she's really defending in Congress, Wall Street or these vulnerable populations that elect her to office. Mm -hmm. And what happens? Bill is in the hospital for something and she goes to his bedside and claims that she can't be present for the vote in Congress. Essentially, she goes AWOL from the decision and is not there to vote either way. She doesn't show a statement saying that she's against the bill, but she doesn't actually vote against the bill. It passes. And this is the Hillary that drives a lot of people insane, right? Because this one seems like even more Machiavellian, uh, you know, whatever it takes to save my, my skin. In his article, Jack Hitt lists the different Hillarys that we see in different stories about her. There's the A student, the opportunist. There's the mastermind, the rat fink, the pragmatist, the truth twister. Almost any story you hear about Hillary, you can kind of break down these various Hillarys in that story. We run across her in all of these variations all the time. I have to say, one of the things with Hillary is that she can seem like all of these Hillarys at once sometimes. And then, occasionally, you get a glimpse of a side of Hillary Clinton that is none of those. That doesn't fit any of the regular pictures we have of her. We have a story like that for you today. For WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Here's what we're going to do on today's program. We have this story about Hillary Clinton that, when I saw it, I feel like it gave me a picture of her that... First of all, it comes from completely credible sources, FBI interviews, in fact. And it painted a very different picture from what we have all been hearing from both sides in this election. And then after that story, all of us here at our show, we all thought, OK, everybody is so tired of this election and so stressed out on the left and the right. Like, everyone is so freaked out what's going to happen if their candidate loses. We thought here at our show, let's just have something funny on the radio and on the Internet. So we're going to have that, too. Stay with us. Equan, server be served. So Hillary Clinton's polling numbers took a dive this week, of course, after FBI Director James Comey said agents would be reviewing more of her emails. There are two basic uh, stories out there about Hillary Clinton's emails and her decision to use a private server for her emails when she was Secretary of State. The Clinton version of what happened is that she made a mistake. There's nothing in those emails. This is her enemies making a lot of noise about nothing. The Trump version of what happened is that she's a criminal and that she will be prosecuted. She will serve time over those emails and the way she's handled them. This was her using a private server to keep secrets from the American people. But I was really struck a few weeks ago reading this article on Politico. If you don't know Politico, it's a nonpartisan political news site and magazine. And this article told a history of the emails that for all the commotion about these emails over this past year, I had never heard this. What they did was simple. After the FBI released its summaries of the interviews that its investigators did with Hillary Clinton and State Department officials and intel experts and CIA experts and some of Clinton's closest aides, a political writer named Garrett Graff read through the 247 pages of summaries. It's a public document. You can get a copy online yourself. But I think maybe only a handful of reporters have actually read through the entirety of it. And then Garrett Graff put together an exhaustive and frankly very page-turny account of exactly what happened, according to what the FBI found. That is, how Hillary Clinton and her aides ended up doing her emails this way. Like, what were they thinking? How did this happen? 
how did she end up running her email from a private server in the basement of her house, including emails with classified information on them? Garrett Graff talked to one of our producers, Sean Cole, about this. Here's Sean. Garrett Graff spent three days reading the interview summaries. He's been covering the FBI for almost a decade, so he's poured over a lot of documents like these. And his conclusion after reading the 247 pages is this. The way Hillary and her top aides dealt with her emails is indeed scandalous. It's just a totally different scandal than people thought. I think a lot of us thought that this was done out of sophistication, that it was done out of, you know, this very advanced Machiavellian understanding of federal records laws and advanced knowledge of computer technology. Right. But by the time the FBI got done with all of these interviews, it becomes really clear it was actually done out of technological ignorance. Garrett writes that the documents, quote, depict less a sinister and carefully calculated effort to avoid transparency than a busy and uninterested executive who shows little comfort with even the basics of technology, working with a small, harried inner circle of aides. Reading the FBI's interviews, he writes, Clinton's team hardly seems organized enough to mount any sort of sinister cover-up. So beginning at the beginning, when Hillary took over as Secretary of State, she and her staff had to figure out how she would handle email. Hillary had always checked her email on a BlackBerry, and she requested a secure government-issued BlackBerry, but she was told she wouldn't be able to use her personal email account on it. That wasn't allowed. And using government email for personal stuff was discouraged. And if you remember, one of the first things Hillary Clinton said when this scandal broke in 2015 was, you know, well, I didn't want to carry two devices. And everyone in Washington started laughing at that because most officials, most people in Washington carried two or three devices. Because there are strict prohibitions against using government phones or computers to do political campaigning. So multiple devices is normal. But when we actually read through these documents, you can almost come away with the sense that that is actually why they did it. That Hillary seems to actually be a very persnickety technology user. She is not very comfortable with most technology, only liked to use a BlackBerry, and more specifically, only liked to use a specific type of increasingly older and out more out-of-date BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. Uh, she doesn't know how to use a desktop computer. She wait, 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 wait. back didn't... up, back up. She doesn't know how to use a desktop computer. Hillary Clinton, the Democratic presidential nominee in 2016, does not know how to use a desktop computer, according to multiple sources interviewed by the FBI. How is that possible? The short answer is I I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can get, you know, not knowing how to play an Xbox or virtual reality machine or something like that. But I mean, a desktop computer, I mean, this is literally the oldest piece of personal technology available to us today. I looked into this. It's actually the abacus. At the same time, says Garrett, you have to think about where the Clintons were at the advent of the everyday Internet. When Bill Clinton was elected in 1992, you could count the number of websites in the dozens. Bill himself didn't really properly use the Internet until 1998. They just didn't live regular lives and never would again. 
When Hillary became Secretary of State, she asked one of her predecessors, Colin Powell, how he dealt with email. He wrote to her, quote, I didn't have a BlackBerry. What I did do was have a personal computer that was hooked up to a private phone line. Sounds ancient. So I could communicate with a wide range of friends directly without it going through the State Department servers. I even used it to do business with some foreign leaders. Powell advised her not to let the rules get too much in the way of communicating. But he also told her to be careful about using email in general, as anything you write can become a matter of public record. He said all of this in an email. He signed it, Love, Colon. Powell has also said he used a secure government computer for classified information. Anyway, his solution, checking email on a desktop computer, wouldn't work for Hillary Clinton because, again, she didn't know how to operate one. So her staff embarked on a series of thrown-together workarounds. They kept buying her the antiquated type of BlackBerry she preferred, the Curve 8310 with the trackball. One staffer remembers having to buy one either on Amazon or eBay around 2013, after BlackBerry stopped making them. To complicate matters further, her office at the State Department was in a secure area where no BlackBerries or cell phones were allowed. The worry was that spies could remotely turn them into listening devices. So the Secretary of State would leave her BlackBerry with a guard on the way in, and then, when she needed to check an email, she'd get up from her desk, go get her phone, and wander around the eighth-floor balcony. One more quick word about Colin Powell. He sometimes used a personal email address to do state business. He used his AOL account. Um, And his argument at the time was... You know, a personal email address is basically like a home telephone line. Uh You can make personal calls on it and you can make business calls on it. So the Secretary of State using a private email account wasn't anything new. It was frowned upon by the State Department, but it wasn't forbidden. And Garrett says, reading through the FBI files, using personal email for government business was also rampant. State Department workers regularly across the board, across all levels of the organization, regularly relied on personal email in order to be able to conduct the business that the State Department needed to do. Uh, you know, because they were traveling or because it was a night, it was nighttime or it was a weekend or they were overseas away from an embassy. Or for a much simpler and much more important reason, the State Department computer network didn't work very well. You know, part of what we learn in these FBI files is that that system actually wasn't compatible with the Wi-Fi that the Air Force uses on the planes that the Secretary of State travels on. So her staff would sometimes use private emails just when they were sitting on the plane with Hillary Clinton. Um, People didn't think that the printer function worked very well within the State Department's regular email system. So in order to print documents, they would often just forward documents to their personal, you know, Gmail or Hotmail because it was easier to print out of that than it was to print out of the State Department email system. This is one of the big, if accidental, revelations in this investigation, just how crappy and backwards the State Department's computer system was. It's shocking for anyone who's ever worked in a normal business. Most Americans would be absolutely horrified at the state of government technology writ large, but the State Department seems to be a particularly antiquated user of technology. When Colin Powell showed up at the State Department in 2001, he was given in his office a laptop that still relied on a 56K modem. If you're under 25, that was a way to dial into the internet over a phone line. 
and a phone line that used to be what it doesn't matter and Colin Powell made a really big effort to try to invest in you know actually putting computers on people's desks in uh, across the State Department, which did not exist in 2001. People didn't have and computers on their desks in the State Department in 2001. The average State Department employee at headquarters in Washington, D.C. in 2001 did not have a desktop computer. Or any kind of computer. No laptop, nothing. And Colin Powell was indeed shocked by that. Uh-huh. So he bought 44,000 new computers. And when he would travel the world as Secretary of State, uh, he would always sit down in embassies when he was visiting. Uh, he would find a computer, sit down and check his own email, uh, in part as a test to see how well the organization uh, and the embassies overseas were actually using the computers that he was giving them. The shame of almost all of government is that government is, in many cases, the least sophisticated technology user in American society. I mean, you see this in our nuclear missile systems, where our nuclear ICBMs in their missile silos still rely on, like, floppy disks, uh, which, you know, the average person in America hasn't used since they played Oregon Trail in elementary school. (laughs) So Hillary's staff decided that it would be easiest for her to use her personal email account for everything, the email that was governed by her own private server. It really just doesn't seem like anyone thought that deeply about this. Just no one was really paying attention to the big picture. Collectively, Hillary Clinton's inner circle And the State Department leadership stumbled into this setup that very few people seem to have actually given any thought to the political implications of it. Her aide, Huma Abedin, said she didn't recall any conversations about whether this was permissible. And as far as the rules for preserving emails under the federal laws, both Hillary and Huma told the FBI they figured any email sent to an official State Department address by Hillary Clinton would be captured and preserved. They were later told, that's not how you're supposed to do it. The main accusation against Hillary, of course, is that she set up a private server to avoid scrutiny and cover her tracks. But what the FBI investigation found was that her aides were mostly uninterested in how or where her emails would be preserved. Huma Abedin, who herself had an account powered by the server, told the FBI she didn't know the server existed until after Hillary left the State Department. Cheryl Mills, who was Hillary's chief of staff at the State Department, says she wasn't even sure she knew what a server was at that point. Which brings us to those two words you hear all the time in the coverage of EmailGate. Private server. That sounds shady, right? The Clintons have a private email server in their basement? Except what that means is that they had a computer that runs their emails, sends and receives and stores them. Lots of small businesses have an email server. This American Life has one, in a closet about 15 feet from where I'm sitting. And after Bill Clinton left the White House, he basically had a small office with a staff who needed email accounts. So he had an email server, an old Apple machine. When you hear in the news that a server was installed in their basement just for Hillary, that's not true. A server was installed, but it was just an upgrade to the gear Bill Clinton already had for his staff. 
less than a year into Hillary's tenure at the State Department, a couple of IT folks started to catch on that she was using a personal email account. There was some generalized brow furrowing about making sure her staff was complying with the Federal Records Act, which requires all official communications be preserved. And it was after Hillary left office in 2013 that the trouble really started. Some Russian and Ukrainian hackers found the server and tried to break into it. They didn't succeed, but Hillary's aides were spooked and they scrambled to secure her email. They decided to change her email address, but then they worried that they'd lose all the existing messages. It had happened in the past. When Hillary was a senator, she used an AT&T email account and AT&T didn't archive old emails. So whenever she got a new BlackBerry... She'd lose everything. So this time, again, it's 2013, it's up to her staff to save the emails. Not a very complicated process. But rather than give it to an IT guy, an aide named Monica Hanley grabbed a laptop from Bill Clinton's Harlem office, brought it back to her apartment, and another staffer walked her through the steps of backing up the emails over the phone. She backed them up to a thumb drive, too, after which she lost the thumb drive. Then, the server was moved out of Hillary Clinton's basement to a tech management company in New Jersey called Platte River Networks, or PRN, as the guy who originally installed it and ran it wasn't working for Clinton anymore. Monica Hanley then tried to upload all of the emails she had transferred onto the laptop, five years' worth, to the new PRN server, remotely, from afar. She tried this a couple of times, but it kept not working. So she ends up just FedExing the whole MacBook to one of the IT staff, and then... Wait, wait, the, wait, 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 wait. There, there are emails on a laptop that potentially have state secrets within them that are being FedExed across the country? Yes, uh, although I don't think it seems clear that anyone involved actually thought that there were classified information inside of these emails. But there was. At the end of 2014, the State Department made a formal request to former Secretary Clinton to hand over all of her work-related emails. The House Committee investigating the attack in Benghazi wanted to see them. Also, the State Department just didn't have any record of her communications while in office. Hillary and her staff handed over 30,000 emails, printed out, which amounted to 55,000 pages, 12 banker's boxes full of messages. Her legal team determined which ones were work-related by using search terms, like .gov and names of Hillary's staffers. When they were done, they asked Hillary, do you want us to keep the personal emails? She replied, I have no use for them anymore. So they got rid of them. And this is where the narrative of the FBI interviews becomes like many other stories about Hillary Clinton, and that how you understand it depends on what you think of her. If you believe she's a sneaking, corner-cutting conniver who does whatever she wants, this part of the story will totally convince you of that. After all, she destroys emails. But if you think she basically means well and is the focus of a seemingly endless witch hunt to pick apart every single thing she does, what she said about this in a press conference might seem entirely reasonable to you. Quote, No one wants their personal emails made public, and I think most people understand that and respect that privacy. Hillary Clinton's team ended up deleting 33,000 messages. You've probably heard this part. Then the FBI resurrected about half of the deleted emails and discovered some of them were related to her time at the State Department. But FBI Director James Comey testified to Congress that the FBI, quote, didn't find any evidence of evil intent and intent to obstruct justice. 
In the emails that weren't deleted, there were 52 email chains that contained information that was classified to some degree at the time they were sent. Eight of those email chains contained information that was classified as top secret. By definition, we don't know what that information is or how damaging it might be to national security. But Garrett Graff says a lot of times, with our government, it's hard to pin down what the term classified even means. The average American, when they hear classified information, mm-hmm. thinks that that's a black and white term. Right. You know, it is. It, that's binary. Right. It is either classified or it is not. Right. And the government classification system is actually much messier than that. Different corners of the government may consider different things classified. Uh Information on one day might be unclassified but might be classified on a later day or vice versa. Like retroactively classified, basically. Yeah, what what in the business is called upclassified. For instance, if something unclassified went to the National Security Council, someone there could decide to classify it. And that designation couldn't be changed back by someone downstream. And then some information was classified even though it's common knowledge. Under government secrecy law, Hillary and her top aides discussing a New York Times article about the drone program, that's considered a classified correspondence. Because it's tacit admission that the drone program exists, which everybody knows. Because it was in the New York Times. There's this one email, probably the most famous email of all of them, uh, involving this condolence call to the East African nation of Malawi, where the president had just died and the vice president had taken over and Hillary Clinton was supposed to call. And it's this very innocuous email. The line says, you know, purpose of call, express condolences. And Hillary Clinton looks at that and says, I can't believe that that was actually classified. Like, that doesn't really make any sense to me. I've seen this email. And it is confusing. It says unclassified at the top in a case number. And then it says classified lower down. The innocuous part is marked with a C in parentheses, which means confidential, the lowest of the three levels of classification the government uses. And then at the bottom, it says unclassified again. Hillary Clinton has said she didn't know that the C in parentheses meant the paragraph was classified. Again, what you make of that depends on how you see her. Either she's lying, or she just didn't know something basic about classified materials. On Sunday, James Comey wrote to Congress saying the FBI had finished going through a whole slew of newly discovered emails. They were on a laptop that was confiscated in the investigation of Huma Abedin's husband, Anthony Weiner. Comey said nothing in the emails changed the conclusion that the FBI came to in July, that there was no criminal intent but that Secretary Clinton and her colleagues, quote, were extremely careless in their handling of very sensitive, highly classified information. I should mention something Garrett Graff told me a few times. He's a reporter, he said. And somewhere in the darker part of his heart, he always kind of wants to uncover some sort of wrongdoing, some juicy conspiracy. And he's almost disappointed when he doesn't. But the times that he doesn't, those turn out to be all of the times. This scandal underscores to me so much of what I have experienced in covering politics and national security for a decade, which is whenever you hear a government conspiracy theory, the almost universal truth is that the explanation is more likely 
either bureaucratic bungling or outright incompetence. In a sense, this would be the easiest and most candid way Hillary Clinton could explain herself. Please forgive me. I and my staff, we just weren't that focused on my emails. We didn't care very much about that. We had other things to think about. Yeah, I guess it's not surprising she doesn't explain it that way. John Cole is one of the producers of our program. Two, knowing what we know. So if you're following the news at all, you know that Huma Abedin, one of Hillary Clinton's top aides, is married to former Congressman Anthony Weiner, who just this week reportedly checked himself into a sex addiction clinic because after two public apologies when he was caught sending pictures of his crotch to random women online, he then went on to send a crotch shot to a 15-year-old girl and allegedly had a whole online sexual relationship with that girl. That's your good investigation. And as you probably know, his laptop and phone were seized. And then while authorities were looking on his computer, they found emails between Wiener's wife, Humid Abedin, and Hillary Clinton. And those emails, of course, are what led the FBI to investigate another round of Clinton emails. And that, of course, is what led to the dramatic drop in Clinton's poll numbers and, incidentally, to Donald Trump saying, thank you, Huma. Good job, Huma. If there's one person in the world who might understand what it's like for Huma Abedin to be a public figure and a woman repeatedly paying a public price for her husband's extramarital sex life. She's in luck. The one person in the world who might understand this best is probably her boss, Hillary Clinton. What is it like when they talk about this? Okay, obviously, they're not going to do it over email. This requires face-to-face conversation. This, then, is the conversation that we imagine they had last Friday. That's the day the news broke that Wiener's laptop, because of his lap, would change the focus and direction of the presidential election. Or should I say the presidential... Never mind. This then is the first conversation they have with that news hanging between them. Huma is the first one to speak. I... I know. 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 You know. I know. (laughs) You know. Oh, I know. I know. You know, I know. I know. I know. (sighs) Who knows? (laughs) I knew. Mm. You knew. I know. I I didn't. I know. I didn't know. I didn't know. You know, I I didn't know. I know. I know. Thanks for the talk. Actresses Tammy Sager and Katie Huffman playing the parts of Huma Abedin and Hillary Clinton.
Try to catch a squirrel in an attic and other stuff that has no national importance at all that will not affect the fate of the nation in any way. Stuff we have dug up from our archives to provide a break from current events as we head into these last days before this election. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's American Life from Ira Glass. Today's show, Master of Her Domain, Name. So it was just a few days to go to the presidential election. We decided to address the election in the first half of today's show. And then in this half, we thought we would just put stuff on the air to amuse ourselves and you because so many people seem to be totally stressing out about what's going to happen next week. And with that in mind, we have arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3 of Mice and Men. This story is from a live show that we did on stage in New York. It's from comedian Mike Birbiglia. I think that my favorite thing about uh, being married is actually that you can share jokes uh, with your uh, wife or husband that are funny to you and that person and no one else other than maybe your cat. Uh, Because when you have a cat, your barometer for humor (laughs) out the window. Uh, Last summer, my wife and I went on a trip to Massachusetts, and and I called it Catsachusetts which is not funny, but in our house was the joke of the year. I was like, we're going to Massachusetts. My wife was like, ah! I was like, ah! Our cat was like, ah! Everyone loves a good pun when you have a cat. And so, so we drive to Massachusetts, and when we arrive... My wife has a headache, and she asked me if I will acclimate Ivan, that's our cat, to the bedroom, because you can't just put an indoor cat into a house, because he'll explode. And (laughs) so I bring him in the bedroom, but I'm so tired from the drive that I fall asleep, which is the only thing you cannot do when acclimating an indoor cat to a house. And so I wake up an hour later, Ivan is gone. He got out. And so now I'm running around the house, I'm like, I'm... You know, my cat's going to explode. I wake up my wife. I say, Chloe, her name's Jen. I say, Mr. Fantastic is gone. His name's Ivan. And Chloe gave me a look that I can only describe as divorce eyes. Because before that point, I was convinced that we would be married forever. And then once I saw the divorce eyes, I was like, oh, I guess this could end. And, and if it ended, it would look a lot like that. And so now the two of us are running around the house. I'm like, my marriage is falling apart. My cat's going to explode. And we find Ivan, but we had another major problem in the house, which is that there were mice in the house. And they were, 
It was actually worse than that because they were, they were parasitic mice. They have what's called toxoplasmosis, which means they have a, yeah, you might know what this is. They have a parasite in them. And as a result, they're unafraid of cats and they're unafraid of people. And the way we discovered this was that my wife was watching TV and she looked next to her and there was a mouse. And he was watching TV also. And she screamed and he just looked up at her like Stuart Little, like, hey, what's going on? I don't like this show either. I don't know why all those women would want to marry that one guy. And then she pushed him off the couch, and he didn't even run away. He didn't even scurry, which is a verb invented for mice. He just walked into the kitchen like a roommate, like, fine. I'll go in the other room. I just think you're overreacting. And then he did a confessional into the mouse cam in the kitchen. He was like, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to win. I was here before they came. I'll be here when they're gone. I'm a mouse. That's from Real Mouse Lives of Catsachusetts. That night, I'm, I'm sound asleep, and my wife wakes me up by grabbing my face. She says, Mo, my name's Mike. Mr. Fantastic found the mouse. You need to get the mouse. And I sit up, and I say, Chloe, we have a cat. We do everything for the cat. We give him food. We give him an apartment that he thinks is the world. We set aside an area in the apartment for him to poop in that we clean more often than the area where we poop. We have a gentleman's agreement that in the unlikely event, that a mouse should walk in that door. And he will kill that mouse. And we will never speak to that mouse again. And he will be protected. That's from Catfather. My wife says, Mo, get the mouse. And I sit up and I see what may be the strangest tableau I will ever witness in my entire life. Ivan smacking the mouse. The mouse flies in the air, lands, gets up, walks back towards Ivan. <laughs> Ivan smacks the mouse, flies in the air, lands, gets up, walks back towards <laughs> Ivan. Ivan is thrilled. His toy is alive. I have a serious sleepwalking disorder, so as I am watching this, I'm not even really sure it's happening. I'm thinking, I've had this dream before. 
My wife says, Mo, get the mouse, and she hands me a cup. <laughs> I sit up. I walk towards the mouse. And the mouse walks towards me. <laughs> I put the cup over the mouse. I put a magazine under the cup. I take the cup into the backyard. And I put the mouse into the forest, where I can only assume that he walked into the mouth of a wolf. <laughs> and from that day forward, we have called it Massachusetts. <laughs> I want to point out something really special that happened there at the end. A few minutes ago, I prefaced the story with a Massachusetts-based pun, <laughs> Catsachusetts, which we all agreed, as a group, is not funny. <laughs> Just moments ago, I concluded the story with another Massachusetts-based pun that was nearly identical. And that was Massachusetts. And we applaud it. Which means, in a way, it's like we're married. Mike Rubiglia. I do. His movie Don't Think Twice is available for pre-order on iTunes. It comes out there in a week. Alan. Hmm? Alan. Yes. Help. What? Mice. They waltz right through as if I'm cute. Right down the chimney and through the flue. And soon my house is a petting zoo. Alan. Yes, sir. They got mice. They're tough as nails. They're bold as grass. They breed like rabbits and chew through glass. They block the doorway so I can't pass. Alan. Okay. We got mice. Cut four, Squirrel Cop. So we close our program today with this story from a police officer in a suburban community on the East Coast. There was nothing, nothing going on. Saturday night in this village, really quiet, super cold. And this call came over for unknown animal in a house. And it was, about, it was on my post. It was about five minutes away. So uh, myself and another car were assigned the call, and we show up there. And luckily for me, it was another guy who was pretty new. So we walk up to the door with all our stuff on, you know, the nylon coat, the vest, the belt, the whole, the whole nine yards. And mm -hmm. the door opens, and the guy who is behind the door, he's about 30. I was 23 at the time. He's about 30. He looks like a broker, a lawyer, just really well put together, nice guy, wearing glasses. He's wearing these, like, silk pajamas with a monogram, got my attention. Wow. And he's going, uh, listen, I'm really sorry to bother you. Normally I'd handle this sort of stuff on my own, but uh, my wife really insists that I call. And so we ask him what the problem is. He says, well, we were having kind of a romantic evening down in the 
living room, and we heard this scratching upstairs. So I, I ran upstairs to see what it was, and it turns out it's coming from the attic. There's something up there, and it's just running around, knocking a few small things over. I, I can't tell what it is. It could be a squirrel or a raccoon. I really don't know. So the other cop that I was with said, well, you know, we really don't handle that. It's not so, so much a police function. It's, uh, you know, but we do have numbers of these private contractors who will come in, and they'll put a humane trap down, and they'll remove the animal for you, and it's really not such a big deal, but it's, it's really not our thing. So right as he was in the middle of, of saying that and getting us off the hook, the guy swings the door back, and there's his wife, who was just beautiful. She was beautiful. <laughs> she was probably about 26 or 27, but just really beautiful, like perfect skin, long blonde hair, great teeth, brilliant blue eyes, a really nice smile, just like beautiful and and friendly. You know, if she had said, you know, eat this broken glass, I just would have said, okay, broken glass, it is, that's fine. But she, <laughs> she seemed really nice, so I was going to be like Galahad. <laughs> so I just threw my arm back into this guy's chest, into my partner's chest, and I said, Mark, we can handle this. <laughs> It'll be okay. And she just was just, you know, oh, thank you so much, and she was really sweet, and I was, like, struck dead. So we walk inside, and she goes, I'm going to throw a pot of coffee on. And we go upstairs, we follow the man of the house upstairs and we're underneath one of those trap doors that goes into the attic with the staircase that folds out right and we do hear an animal upstairs scratching away just kind of scuttling around the floor and there's definitely something up there and it's making pretty good speed up going from one end of the roof to the other so i reached up and i took the trap door down we unfolded the ladder and i have this big heavy flashlight, you know, like your your cop flashlight, four D cells, the metal case, the whole thing. Right. I shine it up through the hole in there and it's pretty black. I can see the rafters, but really nothing else around there. And I start up the ladder. Now the the guy who owned the house is standing almost directly underneath me, just to the side of the ladder, looking straight up at me. And my partner's at the at the base of the ladder, right behind me. So just before I stuck my head through this like black hole I just kind of paused. Like, I, I crunched my body up underneath because I'm realizing, gee, you know, I don't know where this thing is. The second we pulled down the trap door, all noise upstairs just ceased. So I was kind of nervous. And I was like, well, you know, I, I look like an idiot just crouched up here on the top of the ladder. So I took the flashlight and I just popped my head up, turned the light on again. And about six inches from the front of my face was this squirrel at eye level with me kind of reared back on its legs and i i swear from where i was standing it looked like godzilla it just scared the <laughs> heck out of me i thought it's a squirrel it's going to be hiding somewhere it's going to be terrified of me it was six inches away from me and it really startled me so i kind of went ah and jumped back and the flashlight slips out of my hands it's heavy and it falls directly onto the nose of the guy who's looking straight up at me and I don't think it broke it, but it, it did some damage. And his nose, his hands went up to his face. Blood just started pouring out between his hands. This is the homeowner. This is the homeowner. I lose my balance and fall backwards directly onto my partner. And I just, I pancake on my, we're both on our backs. He's on his back. I'm on his stomach on my back. Scuttling around like a, like a beetle trying <laughs> to get up in this really narrow hallway. It's a mess. The squirrel, while we're 
floundering around in the hallway, jumps down the stairs, boink, 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 <laughs> lands on me and takes off down the stairs. How undignified. It was terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> so we're wondering, gee, where is the where is the squirrel? And right at that second, the woman who lived there, you hear her scream. So my partner goes, well, you know, we found the squirrel. It's wherever she is. Yeah. So we go running downstairs, and <clears throat> the squirrel had come into the living room where they had been having their, like, romantic evening. They had a fire going. They had pillows arranged around one corner of the couch next to the fire, and they had uh, champagne flutes out. And uh, Nice house. Really nice. I mean, it just smelled brand new. New carpeting, new rugs, new paint. They hadn't been there for that long. So the squirrel, when it bolted down the staircase, took off into the living room and ran underneath a couch for cover. So we run downstairs. This guy is bleeding all over the place on his carpets. His wife looks and says, you know, what have you done, what have you done to my husband? And I start going, oh, it was an accident. And then I just stop in mid-sentence. What's the point? We've only been there about two minutes. <laughs> so the squirrel is underneath the couch. And my partner's going, you know let's get out of here. This is just, you know, it's not going well. So I am, you know, I'm not beaten yet. I always have another <laughs> idea. So so the squirrel the, the, is under this couch, which is in the middle of the room. So I have this bright idea. Why don't we move the furniture away from one of the corners and we'll put the couch in the corner and the squirrel will probably move along with the couch because it's the only cover available to it. And once we get into the corner, we'll only have two open sides of the couch to worry about. So we did that. That is so tactical. Yes. Yeah, I was very proud of myself at that instant. But, you know, I asked her for a box, and she says, sure, we've got boxes. We just moved in. We have nothing but boxes. She runs out to the garage, and she comes back with a box. And the box is long enough, and it fits across the entire short side of the couch where you would where the armrest would be. So I start sweeping underneath the couch with my nightstick, trying to move the squirrel toward the box, figuring we'll capture it and just get rid of it, and we'll be out of here and... There'll be no more, you know, mayhem. So it's actually working very well, and the squirrel's moving down along. You can hear it. It's chittering, and I'm trying not to hurt it. You know, I feel kind of, I'm nervous about the thing. It might bite me. I don't want to hurt it, really. You know, it's just an animal. Right. So I'm moving it along, and everything's going very well. And then with about eight inches to go, I took one more swipe, and the thing just bolted out from underneath the couch. <laughs> it was lined with, like, tassels. I couldn't really see into the couch. It bolted out from underneath the couch. And ran directly into the fireplace, which is about three feet away. It was the fireplace was directly ahead of it, and it ran into the fire. Oh, my. And caught on fire and ran directly back out and directly back under the catch. (laughs) Is it on fire? It was on fire. Yeah, the tail, the bushy fur, the whole bit. I mean, it wasn't like flaming or anything, but there, there was, you know, it was smoking and there was some... There was some, a little bit of fire coming off the tail. So it runs back under the couch, and the couch catches on fire in seconds. I mean, in, in seconds, it, had, it must have had dust under there or something else, but it just it caught on fire immediately. And my partner and I just don't even talk. We just grab the couch, heave it upside down, and now there's plenty of oxygen now for the fire to really get going, and it, it starts up, and we're patting it out, and it's sort of getting away from us. So we grab the only thing that's really available, and those are these really nice um, silk pillows. And we have one in each hand, both of us, and we're just windmilling away at this fire on the couch, and we put it out. But it's smoking, 
terribly, and the, uh, it, the, it was just it was a disaster. The, the couch <laughs> is upside down. It, the bottom of it is burnt. The house is filling with smoke from the couch. The squirrel, when it went into the couch in its death throes, just latched onto the bottom of the couch. It's like the smoking piece of gristle <laughs> underneath the couch, latched on there with its claws, and we're pounding, smearing it all over the place, and the smoke alarms are firing away. The guy's standing in his, you know, with handkerchiefs and paper towels up around his nose, which is still bleeding. His pajamas are a mess. They're covered with blood in the front of him. And we finally get the fire out, and we're both completely red, sweating because we're dressed for like zero degree weather and it's hot there by the fire um we're mortified the house is full (laughs) of smoke the the wife just looks around and just starts to cry she goes what what have you done what have you done to my house it you could see her just like clicking things off on her fingers okay the dead squirrel ruined pillows (laughs) need a new couch the walls are covered with soot the fire alarms are going off my husband's disfigured and then she really kind of just lost it And uh, he was just looking at us and shaking his head like he couldn't believe that these two idiots showed up and and did this to his house over nothing, really. And he just goes, you know, you really you you really haven't done anything wrong. There's I can't point to any one thing that you did that I have a reason to get angry about. You really haven't done anything wrong. I mean, we did call you. But I'm just I just I can't thank you for this. (laughs) They call for a squirrel. They end up with like $3,000, $4,000 worth of damage and a broken nose. And this is all within about five minutes. As it turned out, you know, the squirrel, it was a Pyrrhic victory for the squirrel, but the squirrel definitely won. You know, the squirrel really, you know, kicked our ass. <laughs> that is not that is not what you want to be saying at the end of the day. No, no. Could that have happened to you now, 13 years later? There's always a new mistake to be made. I don't think I I would make that particular mistake, you know. I mean, you make plenty of mistakes. You make plenty of mistakes. That's just part of that job. You you just try not to make the same one twice. But there's such variety that if you're going to make hundreds, you're going to make thousands of mistakes. You're going to make thousands of mistakes until you really get a handle on what you're doing. With that interview first ran on our program a long time ago, our interviewee, who asked not to be named on the radio, has now been on the force for 31 years. Election day, election day. That's the day when everybody's happy. That's the day when everybody's glad. Election day, election day. That's the day when you forget all the aches and pains you've had. You gather at selection polls and there you stand in line. Although the day be dark and cold, still you will never mind. You're thinking of the politicians whom last year you trusted. And when they got into positions, promises they busted. You try not make the same mistake this election day. Hooray! Well, our staff, Elma Baker, Elise Bergerson, Susan Burton, Zoe Chase, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Emily Condon, Whitney Dangerfield, Neil Drumming, Karen Duffin, Emmanuel Jochi, Stephanie Fu, Kimberly Henderson, Hannah Jeffrey Walt, David Kestenbaum, Seth Lynn, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhevar, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, Matt Tierney, Nancy Updike, and Julie Whitaker. Research help today from Christopher Sotala, Benjamin Phelan, and Michelle Harris. Music help from Damian Grave. Special thanks today to Elizabeth Goitine at the Brennan Center for Justice. 
And just a little program note, we have all kinds of things on our website for the election, including daily election animated cartoons by Chris Ware and John Kuramoto. We've been posting a new one every day on our site. We're going to keep it going through the week of the election. Also on our website, videos. Yes, videos of the songs that Leslie Odom Jr., Neil Patrick Harris, and John Ellison Conley did for our show, singing as, respectively, President Obama, House Speaker Paul Ryan, and RNC Chair Reince Priebus. The videos are so wonderful. If you haven't seen them, I have to say, especially the Paul Ryan, Neil Patrick Harris. Also on our website, <laughs> I'm not done yet, in response to listener demand on Twitter, true listener demand, we are also now offering MP3 downloads free of the three election songs. So, okay, all of that, the cartoons, the music videos, the MP3s at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Easy to remember name. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he takes our show so personally, so, so personally. He has told me. He feels like it's me and the other contributors speaking directly to him like we were there in the room. And at the end of every episode, he turns to his radio and he says, Thanks for the talk. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Just for you, leap out